0: All right. Well, we are going through church history, and uh, we are in the modern age. We're in the 20th century, and we're looking at a time when, the, when there's kind of a new surge of empire building, when all the different European powers suddenly remembered that they haven't conquered anything for a little bit, and so they're trying to rearrange things and conquer things all over the place. At the end of last time, we talked about the, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and what that ended up doing to, to the world situation. As we said, his great-grandfather, Franz Josef the I, the the, the, the uh, emperor of, of Austria-Hungary, didn't actually much like Franz Ferdinand. Nobody really much liked Franz Ferdinand. But it doesn't mean the emperor wasn't going to do anything about it. I mean, you can't just kill a royal and have people go, oh, well. you got to actually respond. you got to actually do something. But besides, that's exactly what Franz Josef would have liked. Not, not necessarily to get rid of his grandson, though, again, he did say, it takes a load off my mind to know that idiot isn't getting the throne when I'm gone. But this is a perfect opportunity where you can steal stuff from people and still pretend like you have the moral high ground. It's like, why? We're the done which is why we're taking stuff. We need more colonies in the Philippines. We need, to, we need to take Serbia. We just need to, because we have the moral high ground and we can do that. Poland is ours, because somebody shot our, our grandson. People do that all the time. Do countries still do that kind of stuff today? Why, we're the done-tos, give us land. We're the done-tos, we need some money. Oh well, yeah, we can get away with all sorts of different things. So, as a result of that, as a result of that one terrorist action in Sarajevo, the Great War begins. Why didn't I call it World War I? I didn't know there was a 2 years. That's right! Everybody, It's amazing how often I will talk about the Great War and people go, what? I'm like, well, World War I. They go, well, why didn't, is that what they, you know, they call it World War I. No. You don't call it World War One. you call it the Great War, or anybody else remember any other names for it? The War to End All Wars. The War to End All Wars, because after you do something like that, surely you wouldn't ever have a second world war, right? That would be insane. you got to be crazy people. So, major European leaders. Most of them are related to each other. They're like cousins or second cousins or things like that, brothers and sisters. They all become really entangled, This one bullet, actually couple bullets. But I mean, this one gun, shooting one archduke and his wife, everything gets wacky. Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia because he was shot in Serbia, right? No, he was shot in Bosnia. But he was shot by a Serb. So why does that mean that Austria-Hungary gets Serbia? Because they're the done And they got the moral high ground. They get to steal land, right? And that's what they said. No, it that's it. A Serb shot him, so we get to take Serbia. Uh, no? Pardon me? A Serb for Bosnian independence. Yeah. Anyway, so they declared war on Serbia, ultimately. And Germany, being their fellow friend and German-speaking cousin, says, yep, we'll support you. So it's now Austria-Hungary and Germany against Serbia. Serbia, who's not renowned for conquering anybody at this stage. This whole big German-speaking bloc says, you're ours now. <laughs> So Serbia said, hey, we speak something a lot more like Russia. Hey Russia, you're Slavic, want to support us? And Russia says, I'm fine with that, because we just took Poland a little bit ago, and Austria-Hungary, if they're willing to take Serbia, they're going to want to take Poland from us. Both Austria-Hungary and Russia wanted Poland, Russia got it first. So they said, yep, 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 anything to keep these guys down, we're fine with. To be fair... Russian Tsar Nicholas II and his cousin German Kaiser Wilhelm II because they're cousins because everybody is. They kept writing letters to each other saying, you know, you ought to stand down. You know, we would really crush you. I don't want to hurt you. I mean, somewhat snarky letters, but I really don't want to go to war against you letters. Can Can you maybe be the one to step down? Though their mutual cousin King George V in England really hated Kaiser Wilhelm. And so he was fine with this. He's like, I've actually been looking for a reason to shoot this guy. I would love to go to war. By the way, this, see, this is why I've been growing the beard out, so I have this kind of, I'm totally trimming this thing down on, on, on tomorrow because this is driving me crazy. But I wanted to do this for one, anyway, never mind. <laughs> so that brought in, since, since Russia is now coming in on the part of Serbia, Russia and France have recently become partners, and so now France is on the Russian side which is okay, because France really never cared for Germany in the first place, right? So they're like, wait, you're going against Germany, and we're buddies with you? Oh, we're all, we're totally all in on this one. Which prompted Germany, who never really liked France very much, to declare war on France. And then they turned around and signed a secret treaty with Turkey, which is a little sneaky. Germany did. Germany did. Germany, uh, which is a little sneaky, because Germany is allied with Austria-Hungary, and Austria-Hungary's traditional enemy is Turkey. But Germany's like, yeah, but Austria-Hungary is fighting with France down here, plus they don't much like France, plus Austria-Hungary would really like to get in on, or Turkey would really like to get in on us, because they want to take out Bulgaria. They're like, yeah, we've been wanting this one back for a while. They've gotten their independence, and Bulgaria is supporting Serbia. So Bulgaria is like, oh, we're, we're next door to Serbia, we're going to support Serbia, because we're also next door to Austria-Hungary, and we don't like them. And Turkey wants to get Bulgaria, and so Germany says, well, you already kind of want to be on the other side of this fight with us. And we could use some help against, against France, and Turkey's like, yeah, but we hate Austria-Hungary, and you're buddies with Austria-Hungary. And Germany said, then let's not tell anybody that we're supporting each other. It's like that, okay? It's like, okay? <laughs> so once Germany invades Belgium, Why did Germany invade Belgium? It's neutral, totally neutral Belgium. Why did Germany invade Belgium? Anybody want to guess? Because they're small. They're on the way of France. They're on the way of France! They're like, this is the best way for us to get to France! Because the French are like, oh, we're totally fortifying this border. Ain't nobody getting through that border. And Germany goes, yeah, we're not even trying that. Go through the neutral country. So once Germany invades neutral Belgium on their way to France, and they're small, we can take them, neutral Britain says, well if you're invading neutral countries, we're not neutral anymore. Which is fine because <laughs> George says, I always hated Wilhelm in the first place. So yes, we're gonna declare war on Germany. Well Spain says, y'all nuts. We're not doing anything. We are staying out of everything. We're keeping totally neutral. What about what about the United States? We'll come later. Well, what are we doing now though? totally out of it the united states says nope we ain't touching this european war this is crazy world we're not doing anything anybody remember who the president was at this time woodrow wilson has just been elected president in 1912 that's my girl my daughter woodrow wilson has been elected president incumbent president howard william howard taft who was my height and almost twice my weight not a slender fellow. Uh, was a kind of a lousy president all the way around. But the the Republicans still backed him against Woodrow Wilson, which really bugged former president Teddy Roosevelt. He's like, no way. The Republicans, couldn't you pick a better candidate? You really couldn't pick it? This is the best you could possibly have to go against this guy? You're not. nothing new under the sun, man. Nothing new under the sun. <laughs> So if you're Teddy Roosevelt, former president, saying you're destroying my party, what do you do? That's right. You start your own party, the progressive party, that they call the Bull Moose Party, because they said, well, you're getting a little on in years, Teddy. Do you think you're up for this? And he said, I'm fit as a Bull Moose. From that point, everybody called it the Bull Moose Party. Creates his own party, which split the Republican vote, letting Wilson win with only 41% of the popular vote. Because if. Taft and Teddy's parties had actually not been split, they would have beat Woodrow Wilson. So again, nothing new under the sun. Because you split it, funky things happen, Wilson gets in as president. Anyway, so Wilson says, I don't want to get involved in any foreign wars. I don't want to do anything. Um, I got to back up. Remember, the United States is fine with like fighting with Spain over Cuba and the Philippines, right? And we're fine with fighting Germany over Samoa. But fighting Germany over Germany? You're not, not going to do that. You can't fight a European power about European territory. That would be tacky, right? You can fight them over colonial territory. That's fine. Why is that okay? What's the difference? We can fight with. We can fight with Russia over Vietnam. We can't fight with Russia over Russia. What's the difference? We can protect we belong there. That's right. We are just bringing democracy to the underdeveloped nations, man. We are saving them from those Russians. We're saving Samoa from the Samoans, who are doing it wrong, right? Are they, Do the Samoans currently call themselves Americans? No. Then they're doing it wrong. So clearly, we will improve Samoa by making it part of America. We're helping it. Were <laughs> we fighting them during all this time, th- Oh, we're fighting. Oh, we're fighting people all over the place, Kay. just not Even in right Europe. Now. Yeah. Okay. No, not not right now. Right now, American Samoa is happily Mar- American. Well, reasonably happily, still okay. American Samoa. Yeah. For the for the third world countries, was there also a little feeling that there are people who are really inferior? I mean, we're all oh. Europeans, spread yeah. all over Europe. Oh yeah, we're, the, th- th- these are. Did, did you pick up on that? That, that 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 maybe the vietnamese maybe the samoans maybe the filipinos they just don't look quite as pale you know and, and as a result by definition they're underdeveloped yeah there is that sense uh, um, remember when we talked about albert schweitzer he flat out said that it's like oh i'm i'm an incredibly helpful guy i go and i help the, the natives cuz black people are obviously children you know and so Yes, there's this sense amongst most Europeans, and I include the Americans in that sense, that anybody who doesn't look like us is somehow second class at best, if not third class. Anyway, is any of that fundamentally different from what we do today? Really, 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 really. We'll sit there and we will fight over other people's territory to defend them against other people. But we don't fight another nation in their territory because we're the freedom-loving country, right? We wouldn't take chinese country space away from china but we will be fine with taking chinese colonial space away from them if we were to fight them somewhere else now again before we just say we're racist or we're it is a little less prone to go nuclear literally um if you don't fight somebody in their own country if you're fighting for something that both of you think wouldn't it be swell if we got this territory? As opposed to, you took my stuff. This is my land. So. Did, how did the presidents at the time, well, even today, how do they really justify going into these other, what, these colonial areas just to have war? I was thinking about that the other time when you were talking about the Philippines uh-huh. and how we took over. and like, where did we justify to even be there in the first place? How did we justify going to Kuwait? Now, we didn't take Kuwait from American territory, but how do we justify going to Kuwait? Kuwait asked for help, didn't they? They said, they said, Iraq is, is invading us, they're bad, and Kuwait is our friends. We we're part of the same group of them. Kuwait said, could everybody please come help us? And so we said, yeah, absolutely. So that's the, kind of where it all starts. That can. How, how did we justify going to Iraq? I mean, we didn't make it American territory. We just put, you know, governments friendly to us and our troops all over it. But that doesn't mean it's an American colony. How do we justify going to Iraq and invading that? war on terror because there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, right? Maybe. I'm not going to say there weren't, right? Absence of evidence isn't the same thing as evidence of absence. So, yeah, so we went and we took it because they may have helped the people that blew up the World Trade Center. As near as we can figure they actually hated them as much as we did. But we still have our troops all over it, so yes. I mean, there's a gazillion ways that we do this even today where we justify going into other territories and saying, no, oh, no, we're bringing democracy. We're pushing out a dictator. Actually, that was a dictator you put in there 20 years ago. Pushing out a dictator. Okay. So 1912, Woodrow Wilson's elected president in 1914, Wilson officially says, we're going to remain neutral in this European war. Not an American war, it's a European one. He said it this way, every man who really loves America, if you're an American, if you actually care about America, do you you care? Because if you care about America, you're going to act and speak in the true spirit of neutrality which is the spirit of impartiality and fairness and friendliness to all concerned. That's the way America always has been. Uh that whole American-German-Samoa thing? Shush! Neutrality. Always been neutral. Yes. The spirit of the nation in this critical matter will be determined largely by what individuals and society and those gathered in public meetings do and say, upon what newspapers and magazines contain, upon what ministers utter in their pulpits and men proclaim as their opinions upon the street. What they say on facebook and twitter and is that basically the way things are now what america actually does it's the critical things are all going to be decided by guy on the street i can say all sorts of different things as the president but really really what you guys end up doing and your letters and your correspondence and your sermons in your in the newspaper articles that's what's going to crucially dictate can we stay neutral So I'm going to ask you guys, make sure that in your Facebook accounts, in your Twitter feeds, you are consciously neutral. Again, very little new under the sun, right? Facebook might be new, but the concept has, has been around for an extended period of time. He says, division amongst us would be fatal to our peace of mind and might seriously stand in the way of proper performance of our duty as the one great nation at peace. Everybody else is fighting. We're not. Well, actually, we still are not in Europe. Okay, good. I venture, therefore, my fellow countrymen, to speak a solemn word of warning to you against that deepest, most subtle, most essential breach of neutrality which may spring out of partisanship, out of passionately taking sides. Luckily, we've learned this, right? In America, we don't passionately take sides. The United States must be neutral in fact as well as in name during these days that are to try men's souls. If you ever wondered where the... These are the days that try men's souls come from. Okay. We must be impartial in thought as well as action. That's Woodrow Wilson. In fact, he was re-elected in 1916 using the slogan, he has kept us out of war. So if you sit there and you say, well, gee, did the American public really not want to be in war? Yeah. He's elected on the, we, we're not at war, are we? We're the only one great nation in the world of peace right now. He even refused to act when, in 1915, the, Germany, the German uh, Navy sunk the liner Lusitania, the British liner. You heard about the sinking of the Lusitania? There were 128 Americans on board the Lusitania, including a very famous, popular, wealthy American industrialist named Andrew, Al- Alfred Vanderbilt. So a, a Vanderbilt, a, Car- a Kardashian, went down. <laughs> he was, he, seriously, it was the Kardashian the other day. The Kardashian went down. And he, didn't, he said, nope, we're still neutral, still neutral. But after that, the American public kind of shifted a little bit. They're like, well, but now they're gouging us. And if, if Europeans want to kill Europeans, we're fine with that. There's a whole ocean away from us. Um, there's a whole Edgar Rice Burroughs book about that. Uh, where he wrote back in the, in the early 1900s saying, let Europe destroy itself and take itself back to the Stone Age. Let it. But also, the American populace started shifting. I don't know if you can tell the guy drowning next to the Lady Justice here and the Lusitania going out down behind her. They're like, we, we kind of need to avenge the Lusitania against rotten, rotten people like Germany. Remember, it started with Austria Hungary, but very quickly, Germany is doing the best job of killing people. So it basically became Germany's war relatively quickly. Then, once 1917 rolled around, We found out that Germany not only sunk an American liner, the Houstonic, but also was developing a secret deal with Mexico. Have you heard about this? Where Germany made a deal with Mexico saying, would you like the American Southwest back? We can make that happen. If you'll help us against America, if you'll help us against the United States, you'll get California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. You can get all that back. And Mexico went, huh. It's all the part of that got, okay? It's all the part of that got. But um, a German attache to, to Mexico, Zimmerman, once that once that got out, the American people were like, no, you did. You know, 1917 way of saying that. And Wilson finally changes his tune. He's like, no, we're going to war to rescue humanity. so Wait, and it's been, we haven't had any interest in rescuing humanity for the last three years? No, no, no. What all no, this, is, this is like? President's patriotic punches. Everyone's like, "Oh, our president is a is a tough guy." Keeping it neutral for three years. Oh, he's cool. So yes, America was only part of World War One for like a year. We think of World War One like, yeah, that four years of hellish fighting that the Americans went through. It's like sixteen months. We. Now, granted, we won't and made a big splash, and, and, and it was important. But yes, we, although, to be honest, most of Europe went, thank you. So very, there were a few people going, the late to the party. you know. But in general, they're, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Pope Benedict XV says, church is going to be neutral, too. America is neutral. Spain is neutral. Church is neutral. Pretty much everybody didn't have to take a side win. I'm not taking a side in this, you know, you are crazy. So he, when he took office in September of 1914, he said, no, the church is going to remain completely neutral, we're not taking sides, it's probably not going to be a very long war, everybody's going to be hating everybody, it's going to be bloody, so the best thing we can do is be humanitarian. What? Was Italy allied with Um It, it got, got a little complicated, but uh, but ultimately they were allied with Germany. But that got com- that was complicated because there was some flippage. Now when we went, we only fought in France there had to be lots of other fronts around Oh yeah like Russia and everybody else yep. We just kind of And people don't realize one of the main one of the main areas of fighting is Israel Because you have the British who had always had an interest in there Especially since they were in If you remember the map that I showed you Britain was now in control of Egypt, right? Right next door to Israel And now the Turks are involved and are fighting I should do it this way The Turks are involved, and are now fighting on behalf of Germany and Austria-Hungary against Britain. And now Britain's right next door, bumping up against the Ottoman Empire. So, again, if you've ever played Risk or Diplomacy, you sit there and go, well, I've got British troops down here. What are they doing down there? It doesn't matter. i got British troops down here, so I can fight the guy next door to me. So Britain and Turkey are fighting, the Ottoman Empire, are fighting over Palestine. That's another major front. And it's kind of important that Britain ended up taking Palestine. Because then Britain, well, let's talk about that in a sec. But you can see why the Pope was like, you know, maybe the best thing we can do is make sure that we can extend humanitarian aid rather than back one group over another group. Which made everybody mad. Because the Church said, maybe we can broker a peace. And Germany said, we're not Catholic. You have no right to broker a peace for us. Who are you? You're the guy that dress in Italy. We don't know you. And France said, wait, you're not taking our side? We're the major Catholic power here in in Europe, and you're not taking our side? So poor Benedict is like, I was just trying to be hopeful." So Benedict called for a ceasefire in Christmas that year. In the name of the Holy One in Heaven who mediates all divine graces. Who's the Holy One in Heaven who meets out all the divine grace to everybody? That would be Mary, right? The Queen of Heaven, and the one who is... Anything that ever good ever happens in your life came from Mary. Right? No, yeah. Anyway, so every, he called on every good Catholic to pray to Mary, and as part of the prayer he suggested, he promise her in conclusion, in the presence of the heavenly court, I choose you this day for my queen and mother. I deliver and consecrate to you as your slave my body and soul, my goods both interior and exterior, and even the value of my good actions, leaving you the entire and full right of disposing of me and all that belongs to me without exception, according to your good pleasure for the greater glory of God in time and in eternity. Amen. Again, different popes had different levels of affection for Mary, and Mary obviously way stinking cool. Mary was a really cool person. This, I would argue, is not Mary. Now, Mary being the, the, the queen of heaven, the, the mediatrix of all grace, like, no, that makes me uncomfortable. Appreciation for Mary, yay, it's not so much. But the European government said, no, we refuse to honor our Christmas truce. I and this is that first year of the war, and he's like, you can't fight at Christmas. And they said, of course we can fight at Christmas. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a truce. Do you remember when we talked about this? That's right. Horrible, brutal fighting. Everybody's exhausted. Everybody's demoralized. They're they're crisscrossing uh, France in their trenches. It's a nasty place to be. On uh, Christmas Eve, the Germans in, in in Belgium actually, and probably elsewhere, start decorating their, their trenches for the holiday season. They start singing Christmas carols, and the British troops on the opposite tr- trenches started singing Christmas carols back. And so you go, oh, I never heard that one. Oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, that's, that's an interesting one. I've never heard that. Oh. They're singing back and forth. But once they started singing Stille Nacht, once the Germans started singing that, the British are like, we know that one. We don't know those words, but we know that one. We sing it as Silent Nights. And so the British start singing Silent Night along with the Germans singing Stille Nacht. They could sing a Christmas carol together. How on earth... Can you shoot a guy that you're in the process of singing a Christmas carol with? Soon, even the artillery barrages stop. Even the guys is just going to boom, boom. They're like, I can't do this. And they started walking into the DMZ between the trenches and exchanging <laughs> chocolates and cigarettes and buttons and pictures of their families and things. You really want to get touched sometime. Look up some someplace about people who even decades later said, I got this picture of some woman in, in Britain. That was the wife of the guy I played soccer with, because they played soccer with each other, in between, in, in between the trenches. And he's like, "Oh, I, I kept through this little war." Oh, you know, that's your girlfriend? No, it's somebody else's girlfriend. And I couldn't shoot at anybody after that. And I held on to this. So this wasn't just one club. This is hundreds of miles along the trenches. When we think about this, we tend to think of like, there's an isolated incident over here. No. It's like nobody could fight each other. Nobody could bring themselves to do it. For most of them, the truce lasted only for a couple of hours. For others, it lasted several days. I mean, even past Christmas, they're like, we can't do it, I can't keep shooting at these guys. In, in the end, both high commands had to, re, had to uh, remove everybody and reassign everybody. Like, we had to pull people from other things and stick them in the trenches because we could never convince these guys to shoot each other again. After they'd spent Christmas together, After they'd spent time worshiping God together, they couldn't kill each other. If you can't figure out a lesson from that, you're not trying. How can you worship with one another and then hate each other enough to kill each other? You can't do that. Sometimes we do do that nowadays, but then I would argue perhaps you weren't really worshiping God together. You might have been having church services and then fighting over the color of the carpet, but I doubt at that moment you were worshiping God together. If you are truly saying, "Let's lift God up," you'd be hard pressed to hate somebody else. So yes, Silent Night made it hard for people to kill each other. Boom Silent Night. Anyway, this is also the year that Jesus Christ came back, which is awesome, and we all live in the in, in the redeemed earth, and I for one am happy for that. Um, Jesus promised in Scripture that He would He would return, and a careful study of Bible prophecies Especially the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel Regarding the last days Revealed that the Lord's day began in 1914 Right? Clearly if you, A careful study would clearly show this According to the Jehovah's Witnesses That's That's what the, Do you remember what the prophecies were originally based on? Was it originally based on Daniel and, and, and Ezekiel? Do you remember what Rutherford Originally based it on? Measurements of the Great Pyramid of Giza, which then they retroactively connected to scripture. But it started off with that. Go back and look. All the original prophecies based on measurements of the... Which is why after Rutherford gone, everybody else went, (coughs) let's not mention the pyramid so much anymore. Let's just move on from there. Then again, they originally said, bear in mind, at 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 the end of 1914, is not the date for the beginning, but for the end of the Time of Trouble, back in 1894. So to them, they're like, at the end of 1914, <laughs> everything will be over. So the fact that you're now saying, at, the, at 1914, everything will have begun. But, but originally said that that's when it was going to be over. But you can totally see why they're like, oh, no, this fits in our timeline. We thought he was going to be back and everything was going to be over by 1914. And in 1914, the world is exploding. This is clearly revelation, right? Can you understand where they might be thinking of that? Absolutely. Of course, after a while, they had to keep morphing it. They started saying, the Battle of the Great Day of God Almighty will end in 1915 with a complete overthrow. And you go, wait, wait you said 14. Yeah, by 15. Or 1925. Clearly, the Jubilee cycle is due to begin in 1925. And that's when people kept changing. Eventually, they messed it up so much, they're like, all right, either we've been totally wrong this whole time. Or, he really did return in 1914. He so to you know, you get to 1982. Going, uh, so, 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 which is it? Were you completely wrong the whole time, or did he actually return in 1914? Clearly, he actually returned in 1914, invisibly. Invisible. Pardon me. Every eye shall see. He actually. Sure. Now, um, he took his place in Mount Zion, and he's been working his kingdom out ever since. Nobody's seen him do any except the witnesses, the Jehovah's Witnesses, so we got that going for us, just kidding. Same year, the Greek genocide begins. You remember when we talked about the Armenian genocide? Kind of a, a continuation of that. The Turks had been slaughtering all the Ar- Armenian Christians, if you remember that's a, part, a section in, Armenia is a section in Turkey. Uh, they've been slaughtering all these Armenian Christians in In, uh, in Turkey since 1894 So they're like, yeah, for, we've been doing this for 20 years now We're gonna extend it to, to Greece what a wonderful opportunity now to kill all the all the Christians we can find in Greece as part of the war effort See, it's not about Islam versus Christianity. It's it's about the war. You know, we're at, we're at world war That's yeah, pretty much still about Islam versus Christianity between 500 to 750,000 Christians are killed in Greece. That's a quarter of the Greek population. In addition, thousands of Greek women are raped, Christian churches and monasteries are burned, whole Christian villages wiped off the map, all in the name of solving the Greek problem, which is what uh, the, the minister of war uh, from from, uh, from the Ottoman Empire said. What does that sound like? System- and and when, I say, when I say thousands of women are raped, I don't mean yeah, well that was part of it. No, no. Officially, institutionally, systematically, this was a conscious effort. Why? Why do you say, please, whenever you take a village, rape all of the women? Why would you tell your, your soldiers that? It's demoralizing. It's demoralizing. To populate the, their, their blood. Yeah. You're trying to destroy the race. So you want to kill all the men, all the boys, and rape all the women so that they have good little Turkish children. You are trying to destroy the race. That's the Ottoman Empire at the time. Shades and the Nazi final solution, isn't it? Can you talk about the solution to the Greek problem? The Nazis said, "Hi, right, I got a solution to the Jewish problem now." A little creepy time in history. But you got to remember, it's just an utterly nasty point in history. It's a horribly brutal time. I mean, just to a level that nobody had ever even thought of before. Um, Not only did did it result in 39 million casualties, dead, wounded, permanently disabled. I mean, (laughs) the the entire generation of of Europe was on crutches and lost an arm and had battle scars and things. It's everybody in Europe. But it also devastated. This used to be a forest. It devastated Europe, especially Western Europe horrible after the war. This beautiful, beautiful place of vineyards and forests and things was dead land. 1936 movie, Things to Come. Ever hear about that? It's based loosely on an H.G. Wells book. 1936 movie said, if there is a second world war, it will leave Europe a post-apocalyptic wasteland. This is the first Mad Max movie. This is what Europe will look like. They will be They'll be dressed in skins and scavenging through broken cities and things. That's what Europe will be like if there's ever a Second World War. So America needs to stay out of it. Entire generation of Europeans and Americans, because we were there for 16 months or so, shell-shocked, literally and and metaphorically. And civilization itself was scarred. J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Was in the war. He joined the military. He waited to join for as long as he could Really, really, really didn't want to be part of the war until pretty much all of his friends and family said, what kind of a coward are you? And so he finally was forced to join, felt pressure, found himself commanding troops in the trenches at the Battle of Somme, Which is not a nice place to be. And he ended up contracting trench fever from all the lice that were there And the You want to look up something fun? Google trench diseases and he was sent home to England to recover. So instead of being a, a, a military man, he was sent home to study, write books, things. Anybody recall any books that he wrote? <laughs> can, you, can you imagine how World War One might have affected him from having read any of his books? His description of war and the horrors of it, his description of Mordor and his description of the deforestation of Isengard, all that straight out of World War I. It's like, this, this is what war is. I want everybody to understand what war is. C.S. Lewis joined a few years later. He was also the Song and was wounded in 1918, ironically from a British shell that exploded too early, at which point he was sent home. And again, the sharp contrast that when he wrote about Narnia, and he's like, this is the way it was supposed to be. And this is the way it, it looked after they had war. This is what war did to Narnia. He's like, I grew up in Ireland, this beautiful part of Ireland where it's green and lush. And then I went to the trenches in France. Do you see where that dichotomy made an impression on C.S. Lewis? Dashwell Hammett, who was a private investigator for the Pinkertons, enlisted and joined in the Motor Ambulance Corps, where he contracted the Spanish flu, which had killed, what, a third of the, of the population of Europe a while back which turned into a nasty case of tuberculosis, which left him physically unable to become a Pinkerton detective again when he got sent back home. So he became... Really? A writer, yes. He created a genre called the hardboiled detective. Sam Spade, the thin man, all, all that's Dashiell Hammond. He had been a detective, he'd been in the gritty thing, but he'd seen the grittiness of war and came back and said, I can't just write a detective story. I have to write a detective story where the guy is totally jaded. The guy is totally gritty, because it's an ugly, brutal war. It's an ugly, brutal world. It became a standard for a generation. Every movie that came out in the 1930s and 40s echoed Dash Hammond. Ernest Hemingway went and also joined the Motor Ambulance Corps in Italy, where he was injured, and spent months, six months, in a hospital recovering from his wounds. And then when he went back home, he started writing. And everything he wrote was about intensity, about brokenness, he, he did everything he could do in his life. He drank everything he could drink. He slept with everything he could sleep with. He fished everywhere he could fish. He shot everything he could shoot. He did everything he could possibly do to fill this horrible sense of aching emptiness that he felt after being in World War I. Never was able to, so he ended up blowing his own head off with a shotgun. World War I. Do you see how it affected an entire world of people? Benito Mussolini also served in Italy on the other side and was injured in the trenches. So he returned home to recuperate from his injuries. And he realized all of the revolutionary stuff he had done to create this nationless society was a joke. He's like, I I kept wanting to have this benign anarchy. And I realized that will never happen, because the problem isn't class versus class. I still think I'm a socialist, but I used to think it was the rich versus the poor, and it's not. It's nation versus nation. What we need is a national socialist party. We need something where of socialism, but it's socialism with some grit, because now that I've seen this kind of level of war, we need to make sure that we are in control of things. Something that Adolf Hitler, who's also serving in World War One, learned and co-opted Mussolini's fascism, named after the fascio, or bundle. Well, bundle of sticks is a fascio. A symbolic uh, image from ancient Rome where an axe was embedded in a bundle of sticks to show in ancient Rome that we're stronger when we're all together with with the army at our core, a fascia. And Benito Mussolini said, yes, we need a modern fascism, like that. So Adolf Hitler said, yeah, I want to take your nationalist socialist idea and take it to Germany. Hitler's commanding and officer said, mm, you know, we recommend he's not allowed to advance past Lance corpor- Corporal, because he's nuts. Do not give this guy power. Which means that if Germany had not been utterly devastated by World War I, Odds are Hitler would have never had any kind of real power, because the only people who had any kind of authority up to that point said, "Don't give him power because he's nuts." Which means that the worst thing that you could possibly do for the world was to do something that would devastate Germany. Anybody ever hear of the Treaty of Versailles? At the end of World War One, everybody always has a peace treaty where somebody's got to give up something, but nobody had ever done this to this level, not to the level of the Treaty of Versailles, because France had been Utterly devastated. And because Germany had been the best one at killing, France pretty much had the moral high ground to do whatever they wanted to after the war. So they said, okay, utter smackdown at an unprecedented level against Germany. Could you, yeah, could you turn that down? Maybe it's a little warm in here. So Germany is forced to disarm itself forever. Nobody had ever been forced to disarm themselves forever. But they're like, Germany will never, ever, ever get to have a military again. The economy is crippled by a war reparations uh, bill, be about a trillion dollars in modern currency, for a country that's already been devastated by war. So by 1930, paper money in Germany is pointless. I mean, literally, is littering the streets. You would take a, a wheelbarrow of money to get a loaf of bread, that sort of thing. Der- Germany is utterly destroyed. All of their, um, all their, uh, their. They're, Austria-Hungary and, and Turkey, their empires are broken up into small, smaller countries, and all the colonies of Austria-Hungary and Germany, Turkey, are all broken up and given to France and, and England. So, if you're France, you're like, yeah. And if you're England, where there was no fighting in England, and you get everybody's colonies, you kind of go, woo! You know, it's kind of good to be on that side. Most galling was a section called Article 231, the War Guilt Clause. Where Germany was forced to sign, saying everything is Germany's fault. Everything that happened in Europe, all of that is because there's something intrinsically wrong with the German people. You people are genetically bad people. Sign that, or else we'll, just, we'll level your country. If you want peace, you got to sign those. That's kind to of mess with you, isn't it? Can you understand how years later, if you have a political demagogue that says? Are you feeling like everybody's saying it's your fault? Well, it's their fault. It's not your fault. It's their fault. Do you understand where a political demagogue might rise to power by talking to a disenfranchised group (laughs) within his own country and saying, you aren't the bad guys? I don't know if you can mentally picture that. Speaking of Nazis, Kermann Gittering became an ace pilot during the war. In fact, he took over the Flying Circus after the Red Baron was shot down, and he became the leader of that group. But this is before he, like, doubled in size and became the leader of the German Air Force in World War II. Blackjack Pershing. Remember when we talked about him in the Philippines? The guy who didn't actually do what everybody attributes to him, about shooting people with pig bullets and sparing them with a the pig? Yeah, that guy. The people go, yeah, Pershing did that. No, Pershing said other people, never mind. He was tasked with upgrading the the American army, because at this time, the Americans had 27,000 soldiers. It was a joke. The American army was a joke. He grew it up into a well-trained army of two million soldiers. Actually, three armies. There was a professional regular army, the drafted national army, and something new called the National Guard, where you can be citizen soldiers, and we can call you up when we need to call you up. George Patton was Pershing's personal aide. Ever hear of General Patton in World War II? He was promoted quickly. He was a young lieutenant who was in charge of getting horses because one of the most important parts of military equipment was the horse, right, at the beginning of World War I. Everybody needed a horse. So he eventually became a major in charge of a new technology that's going to change the battlefield. Tanks. The tank became... How do you win in trench warfare? You don't. You just sit there and you shoot at each other. How can you possibly get, get, get across no man's land? How about you just come in a big turtle that they can't shoot through? So the tank is how you win in trench warfare. Once we came in and started bringing tanks in, the war's over. No, to an entire generation, the tank, the machine gun, the submarine, we're seeing pretty much the way drones are now, this scarily impersonal killing machine. We decried the use of the tank. We decried the use of the machine gun. We decried the use of the submarine. Do you remember, did we use tanks, machine guns, and submarines in World War II? Apparently, morality changes. But yes, for a while, we're like, oh, no, and it's a personal killing machine. That's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible. Douglas MacArthur is given the, the, the task of overseeing the National Guard, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to pull people from all sorts of different parts of the country. Instead of having these units from Maryland or this unit from Chicago, that tends not to work well. It works really well in the short run. Everybody's got good morale, and they're with my buddies. It works really badly in the long run because people act weird, because they're like, well, this is my Chicago unit. I'm not going to go help your Pittsburgh unit. And so there's a lot of things that He's like, no, I'm consciously going to have to create a rainbow battalion where I, I pull people from everywhere, and they learn to be comrades with one another. You're all just part of the Army, instead of thinking about it as groups. And in fact, he said, instead of old friends huddling in trenches, we should be out there on the battlefield, small squads moving across the battlefield, not squads huddled in trenches. Not large groups walking across the battlefield, but small mobile squads sprinting across the battlefield. Which some people said that sounds old-fashioned, some people said that sounds too new, and he was absolutely right, because that's pretty much the way we did it in World War II. Winston Churchill, already a national figure in England, hero of the Boer War, minister uh, 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 in in, in, uh, 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 English politics, first Lord of the Admiralty for a while, he, he's the one who said, you know what, instead of all these sailing ships and coal-driven navy, we need to have a modern oil-burning navy. We need to get up to snuff. But then he resigned his position to become an officer in the army. Why? Because he's like, I can't sit behind a desk when all my friends, when, when my countrymen are out in the field, they're dying in trenches, I can't sit behind a desk. Think about that. What would it mean to your morale as a British soldier if the first lord of the admiralty said... Who am I to sit behind a desk? I'm a war hero from the Boer war, and I want to be your captain. I'll be in the trenches with you. That's cool. Yeah, at a time when British morale was crazy low, huge, hugely important. Speaking of that, Prince Albert even joined the war cause. He became a a pilot, and it was in the the RAF, or or the thing that (coughs) preceded the RAF. He never, well, he saw some action, but not a lot of action. But he did still grow to be... uh, Squadron commander. I mean he was involved in different things. Again, how would that handle your morale? The prince of the realm. Now, later on he became King George the Sixth. King when they went into World War II. What would it mean to morale to know that your king has already fought against the Germans? He's already been in the fighting with you guys. And when he says, I will stick with you and be in this fighting with you, it's not just, yeah, we've got a king that'll stick with us. It's like, No, dude, he was a war hero! Uh, No, he was in the war. War hero! Fine, (laughs) okay. He's a really good guy. So you can see why Britain might see this as a bit of a golden age. It's like, oh, we have war heroes in the government, and we got all sorts of colonies and things, which is why almost every British television show you'll ever see was set somewhere between 1920 and 1935. You know, it's like, yes, this golden age. Every once in a while they have something in the 1890s. Every once in a moon, they have something in the 70s. Because, set in history, odds are it's going to be right here. Because that's when Britain, the last time Britain was really, really, really cool to the British. At the same time, that Germany and Russia and France and America are suffering horrible disillusionment. Right? Everybody else is just limping along. The American post-war generation is a lot like post-Vietnam for a lot of the same reasons. The war had blown their mental view of what reality was like, what are human beings like. And so they reacted against the older responsible generation becoming nihilists, saying, nothing really matters. Who cares? Eat, drink, be merry. Whatever. They partied a lot using a lot of new recreational drugs, because they didn't want to think about the world that they were in. All their styles became whatever wasn't the style before. Were dresses long? Okay, dresses are short. You never showed your arms? Then we totally show our arms. You have short hair? Then we should have long hair. You have long hair? Then you should have short hair. Anything that was the last time, anything that was the way their parents would do it, they're doing exactly the opposite. Is that time like? Late 60s, early 70s? Whatever you guys did, that's what we won't do. You'd never grow a beard. We're totally growing a beard. Old men grow beards? Well, then they shave it off. Now. Anything. Whatever it isn't. The exact opposite of the 1950s, which were when we absolutely tried to recreate an idealized version of the 1940s. We aren't naive. We just went through a world war, and so by the time, by the time we get to the 1940s, and we have another world war, we say that's nasty. We don't sit there and say, "How could it happen?" It just happened a generation before. This time we sit there and we go, "No, we can get it back. We can get it back. Women." You need to get out of the workforce. Remember, you joined the workforce in, in World War II. Now you need to get out of the workforce. Be in the home. Cook. Be barefoot. Be pregnant. Which is not necessarily something that they were into so strongly in the 1940s. So a lot of times when people think about those sexist 1930s and 40s, you go, oh, you're remembering the 1950s. But you go, yeah, we have broad shoulder pads. No, we have crazy broad shoulder pads. We had wide lapels. No, really wide lapels, et cetera. We can make it pretend 1940s again. Anyway, nowhere is this disillusionment. Nowhere is this we're going to play games with ourselves more powerfully felt than in the sense of religion, which is why we t- spent this much time talking about World War I, because I want you to understand what this does to the church. More than any war, prior to the great war, nations painted one another not just as enemies, but as infidels, as as monsters. Um, they're not because they weren't Christian, but because they're doing such... Such a bad job. German theologians refer to Britain as the great horror of Babylon spoken in Revelation. So if you went to a German church, you'd hear about why you are fighting on the side of light against the evil English and French and things. British bishop preached that soldiers fighting the Germans were God's, quote, predestined instruments to save Christian civilization of Europe, unquote. Well, because if nothing else, the Germans sided with those horrible, <laughs> horrible Muslims. So clearly, We've got to take a stand. Which is okay, since the Russian leaders preached in their messages that Kaiser Wilhelm was the Antichrist. Not like an Antichrist. They're like, no. He is the Antichrist. Let me walk through Revelation and explain to you why Kaiser Wilhelm is exactly who God was talking about. (coughs) We already talked about how the American preacher, Billy Sunday, summed it up by saying, "This, this war is nothing less than Bill, Wilhelm, against Woodrow. Germany against America. Hell against heaven." That's what it is. This is. We are standing on, a, on, on the precipice of this. We absolutely have to take a stand against Satan and join this war. As a result, it's nearly impossible for people to separate their feelings about the war from their separating their feelings about being good Christians. Once you say that you, if you fight this war, are fighting in the book of Revelation, you are either on the side of the angels or you are on the side of hell. So which are you? You have to be. Now you understand why people are looking at Tolkien going, You don't want to fight? It's like, I'd really rather not kill people. Like, hell versus heaven, light versus dark, angels versus demons. You won't take a side? So like, I, I think the Germans are bad, but I really don't want to go kill people. You won't stand against hell itself. What kind of coward are you? Now picture that across the entire western world, every sermon you hear, every newspaper article you see, every time the president opens his mouth, it isn't just a war, it isn't just their bad guys, it's religion terms. We are good with a capital G, they are evil with a capital E. And since the war was incredibly disillusioning, right, and remember we talked about this before with regards to the election, once you paint the other side as a monster and your side as the savior is there any way that that election could possibly end where there isn't going to be riots isn't going to be horribly emotive people on at least one side if it's evil versus good if it's monster versus savior there will be a strong emotive reaction afterwards right doesn't matter actually who wins there's going to be a strong emotive reaction we see that in just tremendously in World War One, People are so disillusioned, and you, sit there and you go, well then, how can I have any kind of a positive view of the church? If, if this is what it means to follow God, God himself wants us to have this war, and this war was this horrific, I don't think I like God. I don't think I like being part of this. This is a war veterans parade. And they're saying, how can we possibly thank God? Philosopher Bertrand Russell, even flat out said, the root cause of World War I is religion. Religion is the problem. Religion causes war. It's an inherently destructive thing. We need to get rid of religion. And a lot of people said, you know what? That finally makes sense to me. I get that. But the basic question is an important one. If your leaders wrap the war in religious language and then indelibly tie religion to the war effort, if the war is religious and religion is war, if those are absolutely intertwined, and if the war is devastating, what does that do to your conception of your faith? If you tie religion and secular circumstance so indelibly together, do you get to untie them later? Easily? Yeah. Well, think about the, the Germans, too. If you're putting it in a religious language and you lose, if <clears throat> you were fighting for God, Yep. Then, your, then your God just lost the war he was fighting. If you're a German Lutheran, nickel to you afterwards, by the way, or even a German Jew, and the leaders of your faith have preached that you are, quote, God's people at a time of world's crisis and divine judgment, unquote, you unknowingly are quoting specific preachers. And then you sign a treaty where you're forced to admit that you are intrinsically horrible people. What does that do to you? Hitler concluded that the Jews must have stabbed the, the German people in the back because they were intrinsically horrible people. If somebody's intrinsically horrible and I know it's not me, if there's something religious going on here and I know it's not us, is there another religious group in our midst that are intrinsically bad people? Well, they're not me. A large number of Germans also lost their faith in Christianity because they're suddenly going, at best... The Lutheran Church was in collusion with a corrupt regime. At worst, religion itself is bad. Bertrand Russell is absolutely right. If you're a French Catholic, you were given the hope in 1914 by the President that you're going to have this sacred union where radical workers' movements and the church and the government are all going to work together for the war effort. We're all going to come together, because we all love France. And then France is laid waste. If, 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 like, a third of the French population, male population, is dead, and another third or so is maimed for life, and the French countryside is destroyed, how'd that sacred union turn out for you? You might be a glass half-empty, half-full kind of person. You might sit there and go, could have been worse, at least we won. But the year after the war, there are 2,206 strikes in France. Nearly 2 million workers marching against their own government in riots. France is ripped to shreds. And remember, you made a sacred union with the workers' unions, and the governments, and the church. So how are you left thinking about the church at that point? Church is obviously impotent. You're pointless. The Catholic church is pointless. Why are we even following them? They were neutral during the war. They didn't do anything for us. The sacred union thing didn't do anything for us. My family's starving after the war. Who cares about church? If you're a Russian Orthodox, you say, I like Tsar Nicholas. He's a good guy. He's the only guy that was consistently good through this whole thing. The only European leader trying to make amends with people, trying to make things work, so devout he connected himself consistently with the church. He's like, I'm going to pray all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm a good guy. Fortunately, he's not a particularly good tsar. Um, he's not a very strong tsar, and his own troops did things like firing into their own people during riots. They'd have food riots, and the tsar's troops would shoot everybody. Yeah. Um. I don't think I like him. So you may like the Tsar, because he's religious, or you may dislike the church because you don't like the Tsar. As Lenin preached, who's in Russia, right, with the Tsar, he says religion is the opium for the people. It's it's a sort of spiritual booze in which the slaves of capital, those who support the capitalist system, drown their human image. You just ignore what it means to be human because you just do whatever this made-up God tells you to do. And an amazing number of people go, yeah! And then there's a guy named Rasputin. You ever, ever hear of this guy? Nicholas and Alexandra, Tsar and Tsaritsa, loved all their children, but their little Alexei was born as a hemophilia, which she got from his great grandmother, Queen Victoria's side of the family. Nobody knows exactly where that started. And his doctors weren't able to help him very much, in large part because they didn't even really understand what hemophilia was. And his mother became desperate. He's getting sicker and sicker, and he, he, he ended up getting hurt at one point, and he would not stop bleeding. But then she heard about this faith healer from the Styx in Central Russia, Grigory Rasputin, And he, they asked him to come, and he prayed at the foot of the bed, and the boy felt better, and the Tsar, and the Tsaritsa felt better. And they said, wow, this guy gives me hope. This guy gives me, this guy gives me peace. So he said, stop trusting doctors. Trust God instead. Doctors, stop. Get out of here. No more doctors. Just me. I get to control the boy's health. No more aspirin for his pain. Don't trust drugs, by the way. That's probably a good thing. Because aspirin is blood thinner, right? That was a dumb thing to give the boy. So not getting aspirin, and he felt better. Which means that is like, oh, anything you do, you are awesome. he's charismatic. Everybody either loves him or hates him. He starts saying, well, here's what you need to do in terms of foreign policy. Here's what you need to do about those peasants. And she's like, well, anything he says, you do it. Since they have a ten- he had a tendency to have sex with anybody, popular opinion against the Tsar and Tsaritsa, who they were getting frustrated about anyway, Started being, you start seeing more and more of these cartoons popping up where, obviously, Rasputin is having sex with the Tsaritsa because he had sex with everybody else, which, unfortunately, is kind of true. But there's absolutely no reason to believe that she did anything inappropriate with him at all. She loved Nicholas. Nicholas loved her. They had a great relationship. But unfortunately, she was still devoted to him. So eventually, public perception of Nicholas as a weak tsar, of uh, Alexandra as a, as a weak moral person, uh, as Gronos Putin as basically running the country into the ground, all of that, linked together as you can't trust religious people. And so the nobles got together to assassinate Rasputin. They tried it several times, nothing happened. They finally got him alone by promising him that he'd have a private drinking party with a couple of cute women in a basement somewhere. And so he went. He may or may not have been poisoned by wine. He may or may not have been poisoned by pastries. He may or may not have been stabbed. It all depends on the the stories you hear. But then he was finally shot several times and thrown into a frozen river where he died. public's opinion of him is this miracle-working anti-saint, you know, this evil holy man, turned that murder into a myth. I mean, there's incredibly inflated versions of what actually happened that night. But, you're left with the forced abdication of the Tsar and his family during the February Revolution of 1917, when who took power? Pardon me? Lenin? Communist? No! This is the conservative Christian White Army, The conservative Christians took charge of Russia under the complete support of the church. We are taking it from the Tsar. You remember that. Just remember we've had decades of conservative Christian Russia, right? Part of their right wing takeover, they initiated this institutionalized attacks against Jews because we need to get rid of them. Anybody who isn't us, anybody who is socially undesirable, we white Christians need to get rid of all these swarthy ethnics. That's what we need to do. Right-wing politics. This will make everything better. So the communist red army, thus rallies all the socially undesirable people. Right, all those people that you were trying to take out, uh, take out the growing communist army, just co-ops all those people. Pretty much every Jew in Russia says, "I guess I'm communist." I don't even know what that means. It just means you don't like the white army. So the red army takes uh, takes control in the October Revolution, February Revolution, conservative Christian October communists And the communist revolution that took over therefore and created the Soviet Union had a decidedly religious slant to it Because we already read what Lenin felt about religion, right? So this particular one said we're not just opposing the capitalist system because technically that's all communism is It's economic like no, We also support anybody who supported that system including the church So the one thing we know we have to do is, as a Soviet Union is to get rid of the church do you understand how that disillusionment that came from World War I created the largest actively godless country of all time? You know, at, at that point, this generated the first superpower godless country. France tried to do that back in the French Revolution, Russia succeeded. that. Well, but, well, World War One led to, to the, the the conservative Christians having to take over from the Tsar, which led to the Communists taking over from the conservative Christians. It's dominoes. Well, no, sure. Yeah. So, but you're right. That was a crucial part of the domino. So, entangling the church while this great war led to socio-political issues, faith-based issues on this massive level. Then again, if you're a European Jew, this is a time of hope, because post-World war War One is a time of hope, right? Because England says, we conquered Palestine and we have every intention of creating a Jewish state. So if you're a Jew, you go, woo-hoo, finally. Of course, much of the reason for doing that is to get them out of Great Britain. Because there's a strong Jewish hatred around the world. This is a sign in post-war United States. Christians only, Jews not allowed. Strong anti-Semitism in the United States. Most people, most people in the United States supported Hitler, and his argument that the Jews are a problem. Most people in England did. In fact, there was one guy that was almost elected as Prime Minister, who ran on a National Socialist ticket. All of which meant that if you're a Muslim, and you know that the Christians are hating any non-Christians, you're a little bit scared, right? Because you just lost the Ottoman Empire. It was not only a huge Muslim empire, but it was a European power for 600 years. It was the last Muslim European power. And it's gone now. Lost the Christian nations. Suddenly, you have this growth of Islamic militant fringe groups that say, you know what, I don't think we're going to get another empire. What we can do is terrorist guerrilla tactics. That's a new thing here. Generated from World War One, In the day the guerrilla terrorists began to rise. So, how would you sum up so you saying World War One is over, but uh-huh. people are the doing guerrilla and going after certain ethnic people. Oh yeah. So there's still a lot of killing going on, just not under any nation. Not under the auspices of a war. Yeah. Now it's become specifically a religious battle for Islamic terrorists and things like that. Yeah. Um, you're still continuing to see ethnic cleansing with things. Yeah. And everybody is now moving around colonies with one another. <laughs> What do you learn from World War I? Anybody want to sum up anything that you got out of it today? Well, obviously, that is exactly what a large chunk of people were thinking, right? What else? Pardon me? You can understand it. You think Antichrist is coming up and... Oh, yeah. It's horrific. You got things like mustard gas being used. I mean, that's the one thing from World War I everyone... Okay, none of us are doing that anymore. You have the Geneva Convention that comes up and says, okay, here's how we're not going to treat prisoners of war anymore. You know, all sorts of things because of the sheer level of horror of that. But again, instead of necessarily coming together and saying, we totally need to change people so that this never happens again, churches, denominations, says, we totally need to get in control of our countries so that this thing never happens again. Right? And within a generation we have an even bigger world war. Again, come back to what's the most crucial thing? What's the most important thing? To get in control as a moral group or to change the hearts of the individuals around you? If that's the case, then sharing the gospel with one person changes the world. That's right. Dear Lord, I thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to not only learn, but thank you for the opportunity that you give us to change the world. Or we keep expecting world leaders to do it, and they, and they do, but they do it in ways that don't help the world. Lord, I pray help us to change the world by talking to our neighbor, by talking to the checkout clerk, by talking to one another and sharing your gospel. Help us, Lord, to make a difference by making a difference in the people. We pray, Lord, use us as your ambassadors and be glorified.